Welcome everybody to episode 116 of the Metabilis 2 podcast featuring David and Ben. And this week we continue our Ace retrospective with a pivotal Ace story. The Curse of Fenric. <laughs> Time Lord. <laughs> We podcast again, Time Lord. <laughs> For the first time that anyone has noticed, we will do something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's the, it's the Curse of Fenric. And I think what we decided to do, or at least what I did, is we watched the on, Omnibus. The special edit. Special the, director's cut edition. The, well, it wasn't the director's cut because the director had passed. He <laughs> From beyond the grave. <laughs> yeah, he uh, died at an early age. Uh, oh, did he? I did I not know I think he's that. 51 years old is when... Oh, really? Uh, That's yeah, too, the, too young to die. It's it was uh, Nicholas Mallet, who, or Mallet, Mallet who was the director, and he died um, before the DVD range became a thing. So Mark Ayers, who uh, scored it, reconstructed from what he remembered okay. was the uh, the 71 edit, I think is what he called it. Blimey, you, you, you know a lot about Doctor <laughs> Who. That's well, amazing. I, I, you know what you should do? <laughs> what you should do is start a podcast about uh, it. There's an really, idea. <laughs> and, and I see that, that Mr. Mallet was director of the Mysterious Planets mm-hmm. and also Paradise Towers. He did. He did indeed. Two, I think this is his Stone Cold Classics. best directed of the three of those. Yes. Yes. Low bar. It's a low bar, <laughs> but it is the best directed of the three of those. Yes. Very true. Well, it was his persuasion or his insistence that filmed it entirely on location. He persuaded John Nathan Turner that this would look really good if it was filmed on location, and I think it uh, comes across more or less pretty well. I think the terrible the problems with the weather, weather is where it detracts because sometimes yeah. when it looked sunny and they were trying to do foggy, didn't really didn't really sell it very well. No, when they try and do rainy, and what's what's that? I I, I took a I made a mental note when the water is coming under the door of the sacristy in yes, the church and yes. the doctor says it hasn't rained for days <laughs> when actually just the previous scene like him and ace have been literally being soaked with rain mm-hmm. um but there you go yeah I, I guess that bit was cut um i'd not watched the episodic version of curse of Fenric for a long time because it's not a story i enjoy very much mm-hmm. so i was really unable to do a direct comparison between um the re- this reconstructed airs cut mm-hmm and the original one. Um, I missed some of the cliffhangers. Yeah, there were cliff. Obviously, there were cliffhangers there. There's glowing green eyes right. um, that obviously denote a cliffhanger. Um, then we go quickly into a uh, into a into a firing squad, which would have been like a uh, I don't know, not a cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. I assume that quite a lot that was cut were things like that scene where uh, Nicholas Parsons and um, Ace and the Doctor are having a chat in the pouring rain because it was it's just so obviously just too wet mm. and the noise of the rain on the umbrella as well <laughs> is just kind of ridiculous mm. so um serves you right for trying to record a, a tv show in britain basically yeah outdoors so to, outdoors yeah outdoors yeah and mm. when was it hang on when, when march what, what t- I think march it was oh. march or april well that's ridiculous yeah it's it's either going to be sunny or it's going to be rainy it's not going to be do it's not it's, it's going to be doing one of those two things in quick succession yeah down in down in dorset yeah, I, the the things anyway, that were yeah. cut for time were like middles of scenes, like the final bits of scenes where actors would 
give a, a, a facial expression or a touch of a shoulder, those type of things. Right. And then establishing shots. So right. the two that Mark Ayers called to attention to was Parsons outside the church looking up and just kind of looking pensive. And then when Ace was on the roof uh, being pursued by the hemivores, right. uh, the, an establishing shot of the hemivores coming towards the church. Which I thought, yeah, and those are, the, those are some good shots, actually. I like those crowds of hemivores. Yeah. Um, uh, sorry, there's a funny noise in the background. Um, <laughs> those, uh, those clouds of, he- crowds of hemivores hoying themselves towards the church was actually kind of effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The hemivore design, I thought, was also pretty good. It it was good. Who is the who is our production designer, our costume designer on this? Oh well, costumes were Ken True, and Ooh, he's Ken a hmm. he's a well established Doctor Who costumer. He did Terror of the yeah. Autons, for example, Snake Dance. Oh, Snake Dance, yeah. There's there's some fabulous costumes in that, and also a very yeah. effective snake. Ghost Light earlier in the okay. well later in this season. Oh, so. we're responsible for the for Re- the husks. Did perhaps. Remembrance? Yeah. Um, yeah. No super and, and survival coming up. Oh, very good. Um, I thought, that, I mean, the the old one was a little bit, little bit hokey. His kind of slow blinking eyes made him more like a kind of an Aslan character, like a blue, <laughs> like a blue rotten lion. Um, Escape rather. from Narnia. <laughs> Escape from thousands of years in the future. Mm. Um, yeah, no. So I, I, I the old one again. It made it made that that character ambiguous a little bit. Well, I guess it kind of was an ambiguous character anyway. It was a timey wimey character. Was a timey wimey character paradox? He, yeah, he seemed more cuddly than than intimidating to mm-hmm. me. Just like the vampires with their great big long nails seemed more impractical than 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 threatening. But their faces they're kind of that kind of rotten kind of bloated as one fondly imagines a corpse that's been under the water might be right. after it's been under the water for a while mm-hmm. were were really uh, pretty cool and pretty intimidating mm-hmm. and um yeah liked mm-hmm. them so yeah. i i get a sense though that you're you're holding back there are things that you didn't like in nah. this story <laughs> <laughs> things i didn't like well i mean it goes on a bit well, I think that's a fault of the special edition. There was parts of it that seemed to drag a little bit, but yeah. then uh, when you compare it to the uh, the 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 broadcast version, the broadcast yeah. version is just chopped up and really pacey. So, yeah, I'm I'm wondering if I should have dusted off the VHS tapes and went for the 1991 edit, which has oh, only. Six minutes restored, opposed to right. about twelve or fifteen minutes restored in the special edition. That would would make a difference in how it comes across. Yeah, um, it's also really pretentious as well. In the same way that um, Dragonfire was kind of <laughs> same writer, um, pre- pre- <laughs> no, pretentious in in form. Um, this was pretentious in content. It was like we really got to imply some kind of past relationship between Judson and Millington. Is that really necessary hmm. to kind of put that in as well? This is Ian Briggs again writing because he wrote, I know, he yeah. did uh, Dragonfire and he really wanted to tell the story of Alan Turing. He did want to tell the story of Alan Turing. Um, and so it had to be hinted at yes. the homosexuality rather than out and center. But I mean, then again, you fall into the you fall into the trap of the, this is some kind of alternative universe, World War Two, when there wasn't an Alan Turing. Well, we have um, there isn't. There's a Judson. <laughs> there's a Judson who obviously has got distracted from cracking 
from inventing computers and cracking German codes. And and obviously that probably didn't happen in this version of World War Two. Mm-hmm. And maybe the Germans won in the end, thanks to Judson <laughs> being all distracted by by Fenrix and curses and green goo that comes out of the ground. Well, it was more Millington who was distracted, right? That's true. That's true. He was the one who ordered the Judson to use Ultima on the runestones. On the old runestones. Um, so, you know, there's runestones and there's Alan Turing. I was actually looking at it. It was the, uh, I think, the kind of, I don't know whether you've read it, but, you know, that kind of book, uh, that kind of doorstop um, biography of Alan Turing, I think, came out in 1984. So, obviously... Um, you know, that's a book that Ian Briggs has read and would like us to know that he's read that book as well. Um, he'd like us to know he's done his re- he's done his research on Vikings and runes. Um, uh, what else do I yeah, like? Yeah, the, 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 the whole are... bit with the alphabet and the runic alphabet seemed a little bit... Uh, well, there's an interesting detail that probably wasn't needed. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't needed at all, exactly. Um, and, you know, why there's runes in the church... Uh, well, I mean, okay, over, um, there, don't, there are not really any sympathetic characters. Mm. Everyone seems flawed and horrible, including the minor characters who don't actually need to be flawed and horrible. I mean, I don't know why the landlady of of, of Sharon and Tracy, whatever they're called, um, <laughs> Phyllis and be, Jean. <laughs> that's it, has to be a religious lunatic. I mean, there aren't that many religious lunatics in Britain. There's certainly not nearly as many of them as there are in the United States. No. So I'm not sure why she had to be quite so like that. That seemed unnecessary. So it seems that there weren't really there aren't, there aren't any nice characters in it. What about Kathleen Dudman? Uh, Ace's uh, Ace's pathetic grandmother. grandmother. Um, is she really a character? She's more like a plot point, really. She's, I felt. Well, she's something for Ace to uh, yeah, that's what I mean. rage, rage against, I guess. Or the baby exactly. is. Exactly. Yeah, the baby is. The baby. the baby is your the mother. Ba- <laughs> the baby is your mother. Which, which again, appears to be some... I don't know. Everyone's like, whoa, no way. It's a, it's a show involving very, time travel. Yeah, it was very and telegraphed. And the baby's my mother. How could that even happen? So mm-hmm. that was... That was a bit pretentious. There's like there's weird, unnecessary Briggs science in it. Uh, these whole time storms that appear to be a thing that Briggs likes to have that conveniently move people around mm-hmm. the universe so that they they are where he wants them to be. Right. Uh, that's kind of that's kind of convenient. I don't understand the green goo. That is some naturally occurring poison, which is looks like antifreeze underneath this church. Yeah, that yeah, that's not helping. Uh, it's a natural occurring poison that, if released into when it comes out of the ground, right? Mm-hmm. If it's on land, but if it's released into the ocean, which of course is below the point of where it comes out of, <laughs> it will destroy the whole planet. Well, I would have thought if it had been emerging from the ground over a period of time, it would have already gotten into the ocean and poisoned everything. So that's confusing. Uh, I guess looking at that green goo, I'm reminded both of the goo um, that we're mining or whatever we're doing in the Ganger episode of... of Rebel Flesh, of, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, that's probably something to do with that goo. I'm also actually re- was, was being very strongly reminded, and it was a shame they didn't actually do that, of the goo that um, makes primoids. Hmm. Because <laughs> um, that's that's green and it comes out of the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, you could have had uh, werewolves and vampires then. Werewolves and vampires. <laughs> um, you also could have had giant maggots, of course, as well. If you're looking at green goo, so I, the green goo makes so so little sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, obviously, it needs to be there so that 
I don't know, <laughs> over a period of years, couple of years, Millington's secret army of gas-masked minions have filled a lot of bombs with it. I don't know if you needed to have a natural source for the green poison. No. Other than you, you wanted to establish this as a long-term curse of Fenric. Yeah, and again, one imagines that possibly the goo is some side effect of Fenric's evil. You know, he's been in that bottle since the year 800 or whatever. Um, well, was it Fenric or was it the... It wasn't Fenric. It was the ancient one that was in the bottle or was attached to the bottle. No, I thought it was Fenric who's in the bottle. No. The ancient one's under the ocean, isn't he? Yeah, but he was the one who traveled and followed the Vikings and... It's confusing. Ooh. I thought Fenric's like a genie and is in a bottle, like a like a like a gin, like a genie. Yeah, yeah, but nothing nothing released him. The bottle seemed to be a bit of a MacGuffin, actually. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Now I'm confused. Now I want to. No, I don't want to go back and rewatch <laughs> it because I don't like it that much. So that's. I thought. I thought that's kind of stupid. And we've already talked about before about how I didn't really see how. Okay, so two things. One, one, this green goo comes out of the ground. Mm-hmm. Yet it has not poisoned all of the world yet. We have to do something else with it to poison the whole world. Um, you can put some of it in a grenade and you can throw it at some Russians and those Russians will immediately die. You can put some of it in a grenade and you can release it into a room where the doctor and Ace are and they, they cough <coughs> and wave it away and then put a bucket over the top of it. And then they leave the room because there's a bomb underneath the table. So it, it, has, a, it has a selective poisonness to it. Mm-hmm to it which is kind of ridiculous um and then also of course i don't understand how the very tiny amount that they can fit inside the uh, the ultima device ultima machine that the russians are going to steal right. is going to destroy all of moscow yeah <laughs> there you go but <laughs> so again i mean again I, th- I think it's a briggsian you know it's a briggsian melange of okay everything needs to be the way that I would need it to be for my plot to work. Mm-hmm. And if it isn't that way, I'm just going to say that it is. Well, you're going to have a time and storm then, and put everything the way you need it to be. Exactly. So, which, which is a little bit dissatisfied. It didn't feel, it doesn't feel a natural, a natural, a natural fit. Mm. Um, one thing that I was actually in this, this reconstructed version it actually gave more time for Nicholas Parsons to have a character, which is a great thing, which is a great thing. Now, Obviously, you, you, you're not a fan of Just a Minute, are you? Do you know Nicholas Parsons? I, I do not know him other than his work in Curse and Fenric. <laughs> <laughs> but you are a big fan, I know this, of... Um, I'm sorry, I don't... I'm, 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 sorry, uh, I'm sorry I haven't a clue, right? Is that the... Uh... Uh, Mornington Crescent. Yeah, yeah. Or at least you're Is he aware... on that? No, no, no. But the, oh, the okay. analogy I'm going to use here. So Humphrey okay. Little, Humphrey Littleton, who is the, All right. the chair, the, the, the yeah. compare of. Um, I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. Right. Imagine if instead of uh, Nicholas Parsons as the vicar, it's Humphrey Littleton as the vicar. Oh, so you would have how... jazz in there then. <laughs> <laughs> Which would be perfect because that would be um, tie in fit... with a Cartmel master right, plan right there. Right in with the the Cartmel <laughs> jazz master plan. So um, it's it's very jarring. I mean, he does a great job. Um, mm-hmm. Nicholas Parsons is not known as an actor. He does an excellent job, but it is as jarring as seeing I don't know, you know. Merv Griffin or someone, um, uh, you know, being a vicar in a, uh, you know, in a, in a, a serious fantasy, drama, in a, in a sci-fi fantasy serious mm-hmm. drama. However, uh, this, you know, this the extended version does give him more room to act. Yeah, 
Um, there are a few things that I pulled out as being definite influences on Curse of Fenric, one of which I've already mentioned, which is the biography of Alan Turing, uh, that was published in the uh, I said in the in the, in the mid eighties, um, which is actually a it's a pretty dense read, but it's a pretty good read if you want to know more about um, the sainted Alan. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I think is a strong influence of this are the novels of James Herbert, which maybe Americans don't know so much about, but they're very formative for uh, young men, boys, uh, British boys of the who you know grew up in the seventies and eighties. Um, all of which have there's always a vicar in James Herbert novels and the vicar is always flawed in some kind of way and he always ends up being killed horribly. So I'm pretty sure that Briggs has been reading James Herbert and that really accounts for the horribleness of all his incidental characters. Um, They're all nasty and they all die in nasty ways and that's pretty much a kind of standard James Herbert piece there. The other one that just came to me when I was watching this the other day is, uh, again, we're taking it back to 2000 AD, the, uh, the seminal British anthology comic, first published in 1977 and still running to this day. In 1980, they had a, a short-run series called Fiends of the Eastern Front, which was written by Jerry Findlay Day and illustrated by Carlos Esquerra. I'm holding a copy in my hand. And that was about Germans fighting vampires um Romanian vampires in during in kind of 1942 Russia on the eastern front in World War Two, and that was a, that's actually been a very seminal story for kind of various parts of kind of British fantasy mm-hmm. over the years because it's kind of a mashup of vampires and World War Two. Um, and again, I would be very surprised if Briggs had not been a fan of that particular comic strip. Because it seems to me, you know, again, he's got Russians, he hasn't got Germans, but he's got Russians, he's got vampires, he's got World War Two, etc., etc., etc. So there's a lot of very kind of pretentious dialogue. Every Everything that everyone says is always super important to the plot. There's no small talk. Ace falls in love with somebody. <laughs> That's, that person gets taken over by an evil from the beginning of time. But they all have a bit of a laugh at the end, um, and she seems to have gotten over it pretty quickly, mm-hmm. having just dived into the ocean a little bit. Mm-hmm. There is a great bit where uh, <laughs> Ace is standing in front of that dangerous undercurrent sign yeah. and kind of pointing at it as if we couldn't see it. Anyway, there's, there's, a, there's a whole... I, I just find it uh, pretty unsatisfying, I'm mm. afraid. it's I, I don't... I mean, it's nicely done. Mm-hmm. You know, the BBC does costume drama very well and they've got the right rifles and the right uniforms and, you know, they do that whole Hunt for Red October thing where everyone says, now let us all speak English. Mm -hmm. Um, And then everyone just speaks English for the rest of the show. Um, Anyway, so that's a a mishmash of my objections to the (laughs) Curse of Fenric. How was the Viking and the Norse mythology handled for you? Um, Pretty good, actually. Um... Uh, it's nice. I mean, as of course, as, as everyone knows, the reason why. Um, so we, 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 we reference Constantinople quite nicely. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, as everyone knows, the Vikings who were uh, well known in Constantinople during the Middle Ages were called the Rus. Right. By the by the Greeks, mm-hmm. which is, of course, where we get the, the where, why, why Russia is called Russia, because mm-hmm. it's the land of the Rus, it's the land of the Vikings. So that that that's a neat that's a nice t- tie in. And again, you know, I'm sure that's something that Briggs read and wants us to know about and kind of made made obvious. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, and I think the mythology is pretty good. It's a shame they weren't able to use the word Ragnarok. Yes, that's a 
probably a disappointment of uh, Briggs too that yeah it was taken taken up by a greatest show in the galaxy and really a wasted name really in greatest show yeah because they they could have been the the you know the gods of Ming Mong couldn't yeah, they really yeah. for um they didn't have to be the gods of Ragnarok and see Ragnarok would have been a really useful word to use in the Curse of Fenrir right. because it's obviously kind of about that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, so that, yeah, you know, I think the mythology is handled pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the whole Rooney deciphering Rooney stuff is not handled particularly well. I'm not entirely sure how the ultimate machine can translate things. I mean, runes aren't a code; they're an alphabet. Right. So um, I don't know enough about code breaking to know whether what I've just said makes sense. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't really see how those two things are analogous. Um, but maybe they are. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Um, One nice thing uh, about this, though, that yeah. in your past objections, you were wondering how the the Soviets were going to get the ultimate machine onto the raft. And yes, I don't know if it's because of the uh, director or the extended edit. It's very clear in this that they're just taking the core, the heart. The uh, It's a small yes. little machine. Yes, which... Which which also makes it a lot more raft friendly, <laughs> but makes it less convincing that it contains enough poison gas to destroy all of Moscow. Right, so it's a it's a double edged yeah. sword there. Double edged sword. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, one suspects at some point during the writing of this there was going to be something about nuclear weapons, right? Yeah, I think that's how they originally started out, that this would be a nuclear weapons, and then it became more interesting to be gas to Briggs and Cartmel. Yeah, it, more interesting but less realistic, if one can use the word realistic to, to apply that word realistic to Doctor Who. But yes, because, you know, uh, one can imagine that you'd be, you know, you'd be purifying uranium, which would be poisonous. Mm-hmm. That's that, And, you know, you could probably carry a small atomic bomb on a life on a you know on a rubber on a on a you know on a dinghy but in 1944 um, uh well yeah it's slightly we got more fat man and little boy who yeah. were but, not no, this, small this, bombs <laughs> but this is britain though oh. i mean we're really good at that kind of stuff um, i'm oh, sure yeah. we would have been able to invent a tiny bomb uh, nation um, home of international electromatics so of course <laughs> exactly exactly um and it's slightly more convincing, I think, than mysterious green goo that comes out of the ground. Unless, of course, we'd really gone deep and kind of, you know, referenced that that green goo and, and I don't know, had some maggots there or, you know, some primords or, I don't know, which would then would have put it firmly in a Doctor Who universe. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Well, I think this who is knows? a good story. I, I like it. I know. You I, like I think story. this you is like probably the, the yeah. best yeah. best that McCoy era has to offer in many ways. It, right. It is cohesive within the story itself i think the if you if you accept some of the objections that you have and really my i i I have had two phases with this uh the first objection i had is i didn't buy parson reverend parson nicholas parson reverend rain white's uh lack of faith I didn't understand that in my first viewing back in 1989. It wasn't until a more mature watching of it, probably in my uh-huh. 30s, that this story started to grow on me. There are things that Briggs does to seed bits that make sense. So when 
the doctor and Ace first go into Milligan's office, and it's a chief naval war office in Berlin. One of the pictures that Milligan is looking at is, I'm guessing, the Dresden firebombing. Right. The doctor references that, and that is precisely the thing that made has made Wainwright uh, lose his faith in goodness and in love. And it it ties the pieces together, I think, in a way that really haven't been skillfully done in the Cartmill era. I mean, they name check the the chess set that and Lady Painfort and whatnot, and that's so obviously awkward and not right. good. But where you have a nice detail right. in the production in Millington's office, they have a replica of the Isle of Lewis chess set which is a Viking bit, and that's where yes, Ace says, why is everyone so interested in Vikings? Uh, Ace is a, a first created or dramatized by Briggs himself, and so it, like a lot with Chris Boucher when yes. he wrote for Leela, he understood the character and brought things out of the character that seemed to fit well, and I thought it was plausible that Ace was uh, knowledgeable about some basic elements of computer science, understand logic gates and that kind of thing because of the way that Briggs wrote for that character, uh, Sophie Eldred and her acting of Ace really, I think, made that a convincing bit. Though, would have been more convincing if it had been Mel, though. It would have been, but Mel was... <laughs> I'm joking. Yeah, well, Mel was just really a poorly drawn character. Yes. Um, Sorry, I interrupted Carry on. So Briggs wanted to bring in the whole idea of vampires. Vikings meet vampires. What happens if Vikings intersect with vampires? You need the whole sexual element, and that's where the where Phyllis and Jean's there. Again, I think this is punch pulling because you would have made them a little more uh, suggestive, a little more lusty, a little more sexualized to Wayne Wright or something maybe beforehand. That when Hardigan Hardicare goes uh, off off on them, saying they're wicked, wicked, evil girls, that there would be some kind of uh, more than just going swimming. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, I, it's, uh, I guess. Are we not interested in the fact that they're punished for being girls? They get turned into vampires, so the the Mrs. Hardacre was exactly right. They shouldn't have gone to Maiden's Point and gone swimming because mm-hmm. that made them get turned into vampires. Mm. They should have listened to her. Maybe. You know what they should call that Maiden's Point, though? They should call it Whore's Point or something because <laughs> I think Maiden's Point is a bit of a misnomer, actually. It would have been, I think, more uh, Nordic. <laughs> it's a more it's a more Anglo-Saxon, more Norse word than Maiden's Point. I, well, they could have just called it just a normal name and uh, then we wouldn't have had to bother about it being called anything at all. Mm-hmm. I think, again, it's a... To me, it's another example of just this over-signaling of plot and stuff mm-hmm. on this. And and again, I mean, Miss Hardacre, you know, we didn't really need her to be anything at all, particularly. I mean, she could have been someone who's nice, mm-hmm. who was trying to, I don't know, uh, uh, who's taken in some young girls who were maybe horrible to her and therefore deserve to be turned into vampires. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It's just, it just, was just too, there's too much going on. There's too much. Too much. It's too not. It's not narratively again. clean and tight. It's more of a baggy and. There, it's it's, a, it's like a chess set with extra pieces. <laughs> yes, well, it's like to be honest. I mean, you know, go and uh, listeners of this podcast, go and read the fog, or the spear, or any of those kind of trashy James Herbert novels from mm-hmm. the mid 
1980s. They're all like this. They're full of kind of just baggy narrative and extra characters who are given like just huge dollops of motivation to do things and then end up getting gassed or ripped apart <laughs> by zombies or like eaten by rats or like thrown into pits and set on fire or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Anyway. So carry on. I'm 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 interrupting your justification of why this is a good story. No, that's fine. <laughs> the other bit, I think if you look think back to nineteen eighty nine, this is before the fall of the Berlin Wall, Soviet Union was still a thing. And there's a bit of uh softening of a Cold War mentality with there where we're going back to the Second World War when the Russians, the Soviets were part of the Allies fighting Hitler. Right. Millington's attitude is very much uh, reflected of what we would see in Patton with uh, his uh, insistence on keep rolling on past Berlin and taking on the Russians before they got too powerful. And it shows a little more, again, diversity of Ace's character that she's more interested in the person rather than the uh, country or have this uh, societal thing. And maybe that's more of a British thing than an American thing. But for, I think, an America audience, we were seeing like Red Dawn and uh, all these other type of movies in this era. And this is this is a different take on the Soviets. Yeah, I I don't think we had quite, I mean, I have to say, you know, when we watched Red Dawn in Britain, it was like, this is, it was like a, it was like a funny movie from America (laughs) for us. It wasn't wasn't really like, oh, this is true. The Russians are really like this. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it was more like, Jesus, the Americans are stupid. Um, (laughs) I'm afraid. Um, uh, So, yeah, I mean, I think we in general are more sympathetic. I mean, there is a, again, just referencing... And I don't think it's 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 not it's not far fetched to kind of keep on referencing British comic books of this period because again they were this was a kind of a golden age for British comics the nineteen eighties but there was a, a very famous uh, uh, British comic strip called Johnny Red which was about a uh, a British uh, fighter pilot who ends up behind the lines in the Soviet Union mm-hmm. and ends up flying uh, for the Russians. And his adventures as a basically a fighter pilot for the Russians, mm-hmm. and you know, so uh, the, the, I think there was slightly more. There's slightly was certainly eighties. There was slightly more nuance in kind of generalized British culture about Russians than possibly there were in the United States. Very much so in the nineteen eighties. Um, here's mm-hmm. a question: What do you think of Ace's mysterious seduction routine? That was my second objection to this whole thing, and I've never <laughs> been able to. Uh, wave that away in my head canon that just seems <laughs> briggs's writing of female sexuality i think really uh, is one of the the lesser parts of the story we have phyllis and jean in this whole metaphor of the water and being yeah. afraid to go into the water but then we have ace's really awkward uh, yes, ham-fisted awkward. <laughs> seduction if scene if- if you want to, if if there was a definition of awkwardness, mm-hmm. that little section that would that would that would that would just play that, and that defines awkwardness. <laughs> My only guess is that soldier was so sex starved, and then I wonder. Well, there was the whole translation pool of young women. So there's they, plenty of birds on that base. So I just don't understand. It just seemed inept and ineffective, and a bit. Uh, a bit forced that uh, a little bit. Yeah. Uh, Ace had to tell the doctor that I'm not a child, you know, and 
Yeah. Just that whole, whole awkward seduction scene. And let me see. I'm trying to remember now. Was she trying to lure him away from something? She was trying to lure him away because he was the guard on where they had uh, Captain Soren uh, locked up. So she up. lures him away, and then what happens? The doctor releases Soren so they can go. Right. The doctor then nips in and lets and lets Soren out. Yeah. 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 So he's. Yeah. I mean, her dialogue. I have to admit, uh, I I would be like, you're yeah, crazy, love. I'm just gonna go and. Walk back and sit back down on my table again. Mm -hmm. If someone said that to me, I would not find that sexually attractive at all. I'd find that frightening and confusing, and I would tell her to stop it and go away and bother someone else. <laughs> the weird part was, is something like, "Well, you promised." It was implied that there was something earlier going on between these two, right? And it's right. more of a Leela and Andred thing where you go, "What?" There was there a backstory? Was there any contact with these two earlier? Why is she saying all those weird things? Um, because I mean, she could have been, you know, I, there's there's ways I'm I'm told to tempt men away from their guard tables by being a woman. <laughs> um, she didn't really appear to be using any of those accepted ways, and be, by just kind of spouting mysterious kind of new agey nonsense about winds and kind of storms and mm -hmm. i don't know it that was that was that's that's an odd part as well mm -hmm. um and i think it is a shame actually it is because i mean they he obviously wants you know he does build up the the soren and ace romance aspect mm -hmm. which is then completely ignored mm -hmm. at the end you know she if she was falling for soren which is which is what weird. he was trying to do, I think. Yeah, then she would have been, I think, probably more upset when he got taken over by Fenric. Yeah. And became evil. But and she then... had just gone through a pretty uh, emotional bit where the doctor had to break her faith in him. So. Yeah, I guess. Maybe that also... I Yeah. So there's a, there's a lot of overwrought emotion which is which is a kind of hard to compress into this you know, small amount of space um i think a more professional uh, relationship between ace and soren would have actually been more more effective i trying to shoehorn in them them you know being all leela and andred mm -hmm. just add, it's just too much it's just too much stuff just mm -hmm. don't do that you don't need to it doesn't add anything it doesn't make ace's story more you know, it doesn't make her more upset when he's taken over by Fenric. Right. Doesn't make her less upset. Mm -hmm. um, it's just completely unnecessary. Yeah, if they were professional, you'd still have the thing where she hears the other soldiers talking and uh, working as pawns against the politicians, and then having yeah. the, the the light bulb go off and go and tell Fenric that you would have had that whole whole bit there, but you wouldn't have to have. Uh, I don't know the mushy bits. <laughs> yeah, and I think you know if you're a if you're not a psychopath, um, I think you know you feel upset when people get hurt, even if you don't love them. If right. You see what I mean? Um, you don't have to be in a, some kind of burgeoning relationship with someone in order to empathize with them. You can actually empathize with mm -hmm. them by just being a human. I, mean, I thought that maybe Briggs was trying to do a parallel. Because uh, of Kathleen, her grandmother, losing her husband, uh, basically dying in the same way that Millington said that he killed men trying to save his ship. That he, there was a fire and then he was locked in the hold and uh, th that they're trying to do the same, uh, well, Ace's grandmother lost her husband and now Ace lost her soldier love or something like that. But it wasn't developed and... 
I think there was enough emotional things going on with Ace with her relationship with the doctor and then her realization of uh, hatred and love for her mother that yeah. you didn't need the whole uh, sexual awakening of Ace, which Briggs has said earlier that it happened with... Uh, Sabalom Glitz. Yeah. Yeah, she was getting it on with Sabalon. She's definitely awoken <laughs> in, in, in whatever way that might be. Um, So is it a coincidence that in the same place where Fenric is imprisoned and that there's goo coming out of the ground that's super poisonous and they're trying to solve the German cipher machine, is it a coincidence that all those three things happen at the same place where Ace's mother is born? Well, the explanation that Briggs gives, it's Fenric who's orchestrating all this. So this is all a chess game. So yeah. you know, it's been He's played over centuries, Time Lords. Moving the pieces. Yeah. So why has he moved Ace's mother there, Ben? So Soren can say, the baby. The baby is your mother. <laughs> your mother. Your mother. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I, it's, it's too... Cl- it's, I, I'm, it's, I mean, it's clever... And there's some joy, there's some pleasure to be gained from the script's cleverness, but there's too much, too many notes. Hmm. It's too clever. It's it's, tr- it's it, as I said, like like Dragonfire, which is formally uh, clever. I you know there's he's everyone's named after you know Czechoslovakian <laughs> film critics from the 1930s, um, and there's this one which is just kind of content wise clever mm-hmm. where there's just like oh, and there's alan turing and then there's vikings and there's runes and then right. there's sexual awakenings yeah. and norse mythology and it's my mother who's a baby <laughs> and you know yeah and it's a game that's been played over centuries that it's the first time we've heard about it mm-hmm. too much stuff too much stuff hmm. okay let's see i agree with you there's a lot of stuff here uh too much stuff yeah maybe some things could be edited out or redirected or some of the loose ends tied up where where i think briggs kind of fell short is he was offered five episodes once they figured out that this was running long uh do you want to rework this and uh make it five episodes he turned them down he thought that would ruin the narrative arc I wonder if a more mature writer would have taken up that opportunity to kind of tie up some of these loose ends and change the pacing a little bit to draw it out so you could have four cliffhangers and maybe more of a backstory. Like you really don't understand what exactly the relationship is between Millington and Judson. It's a bit wanting in some places. Yeah. And then in other places, it's too much. You know, you could have really, you could have edited out either Judson or Millington. Mm. You didn't really need to have the whole cipher thing at all, really. You didn't need, you didn't, well, I don't know. If you start taking, if you take out Millington and Judson's relationship, you need the base commander and you need the, you need the scientist or the researcher, or the, the, yeah, the you need brainiac the, yes, okay. there to do the... You need the boffin. Right. right. And yeah. the ultimate machine is there uh, not so much to crack German ciphers, but it's there to crack runes. And as you said, well, how does that even work? It doesn't translate. It's, it's not its purpose. A language isn't a cipher, mm-hmm. right? I, I mean, you probably know more about this kind of stuff than I do, but I'm, I'm correct when I say that. Yeah. Languages are not ciphers. And you don't need a computer there to understand it because uh, Wainwright's grandfather translated all but the final set of runes. So, you know, that was very convenient, psychic paper-esque type 
plot device where, oh, here, we already have the translation. Let's skip ahead <laughs> to the final page. Oh, we're we're short the final page. And then Judson makes the thing, and it's always a family idiot that takes up the cloth. So you kind of get... You kind of get uh, Briggs's, I think, ideas in in play there of uh, religion. Yeah. I think whether this was a JNT casting call or uh, uh, a Mallet's uh, casting decision, Parsons in the role of Wainwright, I think, is a brilliant. He's very good. Br- brilliant decision. He does really yeah. well um, when he's. It is. Ju- it's jarring, but if you if you if just you don't know the actor, wash over yeah. you a little bit, then mm-hmm. then it's 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 good. And this extended version actually gives him more time, mm-hmm. and he does an excellent job. You know, this might be the the detail or the uh, Briggs showing off how smart he is, but having Wainwright reading that passage from the First Corinthians, I think, really sets up his crisis in faith and in identity that he doesn't see good anymore. He doesn't see love in the world anymore. And that Phyllis and Jean as vampires, now how they know that, how they can read that from him, that's a bit of a stretch. But I think things tie together. I don't know if more editing would have helped. I'm not sure where you would make the cuts in this or if it's more of an expansion. Now, I've not read the novelization. Have you? I have read the novelization, actually. I read it years ago. Um, Do you have a recollection of it being more coherent or giving... Yeah, it is more coherent. There are definitely... There's flashbacks or flash-forwards. Let's call them Mm flash-forwards to the ruined planet Earth with the Great Old One, like, wallowing around in goo and Mm -hmm. being all sad. There's a map um, which shows the how the flask got from Byzantium to uh, to Northumbria. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it I, that's pretty much all I can, okay. Pretty much all I all I can remember at this stage. But it had more fleshing out, so maybe that's what it needed. It had more fleshing out. It it, it it's, it's 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 it maybe it, it should have been a novel, right? It should you know it should, mm. it's a new adventure, maybe yeah. it's a new adventure. Yeah, that could be. It's, it's more it's more bookish than it's a virgin a new adventure. Script. Yeah, yeah, that could yeah. be. Um, here's a question. So I I found um, Alfred Lynch as Commander Millington. That's a really is that is that is that or is that not a really awkward performance? I don't. I he's very mumbly mm-hmm. and kind of diffident in a way that is not entirely useful in to convey the sense of the plot to me. So. I wonder if he was given direction that there is something going on between him and Judson. And right. Judson's injury was caused by Millington. Uh, but now Millington is his superior in, in, in the military sense. Right. And they also cast a gay actor. Uh, Lynch is a, you know had a lifelong partner in this role. And I'm wondering if he was putting in... Uh, you know, based off of the direction that this is a, a rather confused person on many levels, that he's having right. his own uh, crisis of identity with the war, that he's, you know, it's all or nothing. You have to kill to save many, you know, the good, the good of the many outweigh the good of the few type thing. And just the, maybe the direction that he and Judson had something going on and he was the cause of Judson's accident. Yeah, that would make that would make his performance make more sense. However, it's a confused uh, performance. They shouldn't have given him that direction because there is really nothing apart from what I think is an added scene in this in this airs cut 
um, that even implies that that's a thing that's going on. And I think it would have been a lot simpler if Millington, you know, and again, you know, Doctor Who, it's it's not, you know, I've probably said this before, but it's not that complicated a show. Um, <laughs> and you can easily have like a power mad naval commander who is plotting to destroy the Russians because he's evil. Right. Or um, under the influence ra- of Fenric. Or he's under the influence. Exactly, exactly. The flask and the goo has made him mad. Mm-hmm. And he now he made him an anti-communist. And he's like Ronald Reagan. He's <laughs> desperate to destroy the Russians for reasons. And that's all you kind of need. I mean, you don't really need a lot of complexity to have the story work well. And I think... Um, I mean, you know, I, I, I've not actually seen Alfred Lynch in anything else, uh, sadly. But and I'm sure he's a great actor. But it, it was a, it's a really confusing performance, and I'm sorry that he was trying to bring depth to his character when the character, all the character needs to be, is evil. Hmm. Or well, misguided. Misguided, maybe, I think. Maybe, he... Yeah, mis- yeah, yeah. Fen- Fenric is evil. He's from the mm-hmm. beginning of time. Um, so I think if you would have gotten rid of the poison oozing from the earth, and you just said this is a chemical weapons depot, and they are making chemical right. weapons in the case that the uh, island is invaded, in, in case England, Great Britain is invaded. They're going to do it's, everything they can to stop the Germans. It's, it's a regular World War II nerve gas. Right. Um, okay, here's, here's my... Again, we always do this, don't we? We always try and make the plot better. Okay, here's <laughs> my thing. It's a regular World War II nerve gas. There's a small amount of it. It fits inside the Ultima device. And the assumption here, let's have a, you know, let's have an evil Russian along as well. Let's have a, like an NKVD officer or something. And basically the implication is, is this small device is being taken from, it's being stolen from... This chemical weapons depot, which is also a code-breaking place. Those two things fit together really well. <laughs> um, but the implication is it's going to be taken back to Moscow and it's going to be delivered to Stalin himself. Right. So then Stalin pushes the button and the gas comes out and all of the Politburo are killed. Mm-hmm. It's an assassination weapon. It's not a weapon of mass destruction. Right. Um, what, 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 what makes it difficult for me is I can't see how it's going to destroy, you know, like lots and lots of people right it could certainly destroy like a room full of stalin and stalin's friends Mm -hmm. and that would be good and one can imagine you know a crazed naval officer catching that plan Mm -hmm. that all fits together pretty well but again because briggs wants to have big themes of you know uh, the destruction of dresden and then the destruction of moscow and you know and i mean i have to say it's probably not dresden because dresden was in february 1945 okay um so pretty much basically the end of the war um so it's probably an earlier one Mm -hmm. that nicholas parsons worrying about could be Um, could be it could be also yeah i don't know that dresden was i think the most infamous one so that's the one that came to mind to me but they certainly don't name check dresden oh they don't name check okay i was was wondering well you know maybe Maybe the knowledge of Dresden like came through a very small and quite short time time vortex, so he knew about that. <laughs> I, um, I don't anyway. know. Yeah. So, I mean, so, I mean, I think there are ways to make this work better, um, into my mind. And as I've, I think we always say, far be it from me or from us to kind of you know criticize people who've got a difficult job, which is to write satisfying science fiction drama on a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. Someone telling Briggs, let's have a little less stuff in this. Right. And a little more just 
getting people from A to B mm-hmm. would have been helpful. Which is really funny because that's what he starts out with. He wants to work the plot and then he puts the characters in the plot and tries to move them from A to B because he knows what each scene he wants to accomplish. Right. In it. So he's right. he's doing it. I think he just does it in a very uh, bloated and encumbered way sometimes. Yeah. Bloated is nice. Yeah. Bloated like a hemovore is. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> the one thing I think is impeachable in this is, again, Mark Ayer's scoring for this. He oh, really really hits all the horror tropes with, with the with the underwater music and the, the creeping march of the hemovores. And I think every every note, and he's done it now, what, twice with, for the extended edition and... It really, I think, adds the atmosphere, even though it might be sunny out and they're looking at through a filter. Uh, <laughs> I think the soundscape that with the air's music really makes it stand out. Yeah, it it does. It does. It's suitably creepy, and it's you know it's it's yeah it's 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 good. It's very good. Marquez mm-hmm. is is good, and especially on which I didn't know that he was also basically involved in actually cutting this cut together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the man rises even more in my estimation. Did you happen to catch the dog that's wandering through scenes? No, there's a dog. <laughs> there is a dog. And where it really stood out is when they're going into Hardecker's house after to discover she's dead, Ace and the doctor. And there's a dog walking around in the background, just the village <laughs> dog. Funny. Like a random, random Dorset dog. It looks like a golden shepherd, actually. Oh, wow. Funny. <laughs> And one yeah. thing, actually, I really feel for everybody having to jump into the sea in their clothes. Yeah, one well, March. Oh, my God. It must have been freezing. Mm-hmm. And that's actually another thing that kind of takes me out of the action because, um, uh, you know, Maiden's Point might be a delicious place to lose one's virginity and all that kind of <laughs> malarkey. Um, but even in the height of summer, you are not going swimming in the North Sea off the coast of Whitby, no, which is, yeah. I assume, with some, you're, you're not going swimming. It's going to be too cold. Yeah, I think so. I think he set it there because that's where Dracula made his landfall. Yeah. It's near Holy Island. Yeah. Again, I mean, I think, again, unnecessary. Uh, You could have just set it in Dorset, Mm -hmm. which is where it was shot, and that would have been fine. There's plenty of naval bases down in Dorset. I guess it may be harder for Russians to get there, though it's not very hard for, (laughs) you know, that's a minor objection. Yeah. Russian submarines. I don't know. Yeah. 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 Uh, what do you think of the misdirection where it's they think it's Millington and then it's actually Judson rising up for that? I mean, that's a pretty good cliffhanger. It's a nice one, yeah. Yeah, the glowing eyes are good. Mm-hmm. It's obvious that, um, certainly to me, that um, uh, a Dinsdale Landon's having awful trouble with his contact lenses. Yeah. There's a lot of blinking and also watery eyes mm-hmm. going on with the first incarnation of Fenric. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sorry they had give him such uncomfortable contact lenses however he does he does an excellent evil job mm-hmm. um as the first fenric and uh nurse crane who gets killed by the hemivores comes back as the plasmavore in she is the plasmavore <laughs> isn't smith she? and jones exactly so yeah well she should have said when she was a plasmavore i used to be a nurse in world <laughs> war ii that's when i learned my plasmavoric ways and then i became a vampire thanks to I the ancient a plasmavore <laughs> not a hemivore a plasmavore yeah yeah. Thank you, RTD. <laughs> yes, yes, nice callback there. Very nice callback. Yeah. And also with the goo as well. I think mm-hmm. that's a nice that's I think that's a nice callback on in terms of the uh, um Moffat and the uh, and the gangers. Mm-hmm. 
kind of works for me. And Janet Henfrey, who played Hardacre, was uh, returned in Mummy on the Orient Express, too. She was, I think... Oh, what was she? I think she was one of the ladies who got killed, if, if memory serves. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> How appropriate. She's typecast. Um, typecast <laughs> is a lady who gets killed. <laughs> wow, she must be, like, super ancient in Mummy on the Orient yeah, Express. Yeah, I think so. I don't know. Yeah. Well, very good. So, I think a mixed bag here. Uh, it is a mixed bag. It is. A, I mean, you know, I like it a lot more than you do. I think. Well, you like it a lot more than I do. Yes, you do like it a lot more than I do. I mean, I, it's okay. I, it's not. It's not. It's not one I choose to watch. Mm-hmm. Really, I think it's. Um, yeah, I think it's fun. I think there's fun bits in there. Just a little bit where the do- where you don't have psychic paper, but you have the doctor asking for stationery at the beginning and then forging his credentials. And and I thought that was a fun scene. It reminded me of uh, earlier a Troughton or a uh, Tom Baker type doctor right, uh, doing right. that. Not a reliance on a sonic screwdriver or psychic paper or anything like that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Certainly have a white male privilege on display where they're just walking in and doing the, the same thing. How dare you, uh, you're late bit when he's surrounded by soldiers. Yeah, very good. So I, I don't know. Yeah, no, it's, it's you know, this, 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 the effects are good. The costumes are good. I love the... Kimavors going through the door mm-hmm. effect. Mm-hmm. They're quite oh. why vampires have the power to melt metal. I've no idea. It's a power that vampires have not been previously known to possess. But anyway, when when the Kimavors were going into the sacristy, I noticed that one of them copped a feel on Ace, who is up against the door. So yeah, uh... well, it's just long nails. It's hard to control. <laughs> yeah, there uh, you go. Um, uh, uh, th- that actually is not very convincing. The sacristy wall is is pretty much obviously just made of plaster mm-hmm. and bits of wood. Yeah. Um, but I guess they probably couldn't break a real sacristy just to make a Doctor Who show. Yeah. Um, yeah. They might get letters. <laughs> yeah, and that crypt. We, it's, it's a good idea that they built the... Uh, church on top of the Vikings, on top of the goo. But that's the way things work. They'd always build upon the pre i mean okay if the vikings had settled there and they had a pagan or viking norse temple there of course the christians would go and build build upon that that's what happens that's true but then i get the impression these vikings were like a kind of an outcast party because you know it's like this is my last will and testament and i'm all being affected by a vampire some curse or something Mm -hmm. and i the last rune i'm going to inscribe is the rune Ah, (laughs) then i'm dead i don't know yeah so yeah, okay, Curse of Fenric. Um, I think a lot of fans uh, like this a lot. I think it's because they saw it at a certain mm-hmm. age. Um, you like it a little bit. I don't like it that mm-hmm. much. I think if you had to pick one from the Sylvester McCoy era, this would be the one I would pick for a rewatch. There's the enough one. going on in there. And I think it's less less incomplete than, say, like a ghost light, uh, less head-scratching why, like Greatest Show, and just painfully bad where you have something like silver nemesis yeah though and let's let's do this a trailer for next (laughs) week next week we'll be watching survival i've not watched survival for a long time but i can remember really really enjoying Mm -hmm. it so um i'm thinking that survival might be my might, might be my mccoy desert island oh, well that would be uh, very but interesting i'll need to watch it again before next week's podcast we'll see what you think of the cheetah people after a week in review yeah in the meantime uh just go onto youtube everybody and watch old hail and pace sketches and then you'll know why i'm complaining about hail and pace um <laughs> when we come on to survival you have um, your homework cut out for you 
It's the baleful influence of JNT there. Um, and if you're lucky, I'll tell you my anecdote about uh, being in a cricket match Ooh. with Hale and All right. Pace. Well, I'll have to make a note of that. Bring it up next time. It's not a very good anecdote, but it's an anecdote nonetheless. <laughs> right. Well, yes, you've wasted another hour of your time listening to our podcast, uh, as, and, and we thank you for that. Thank you for listening. What's well, been episode 116 of the Metabilis 2, and as usual, as become traditional, I've been talking with Ben. And I have been talking with David. And we've been cursed for almost three years now, uh, ancient, ancient podcasting curse to soldier on as the green goo oozes from our microphones. <laughs> and... Green um, to, yes, well, it's the color of monsters. The color of monsters is green. Yes. Yes. Indeed. Yep. Um, well, Indeed. Uh, uh, we'll see you next week. Right. <laughs> Bye.